Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And anytime we get to the start of a new year, it seems that I end up getting the opportunity to chat with my good friend, Paul Dervazi, uh, who has quite the story in terms of really where his path in education and business have taken him over the course of our friendship and my chance uh, to get to know him and follow his story. And so I asked him to join the pod because I, I just wanted to get an update on life and the things that are going on in his world. You can go back and listen to some of our past episodes. If you go back yeah, to previous years around this time of year, to set this up, I guess, I got a chance to go to the FETC conference, so the Future Education Technology Conference here recently, and I listened to a speaker, Daniel Burris, who just shared about thinking bigger than big was really part of the uh, message that came from that. He was talking about, he used the metaphor of uh, thinking about a mountain. And that typically when you look up at what you might want to climb or hike, you see the peak, but those that have ever undertaken such a journey, you usually get close and you go, I almost have to be there. And you're not because there's even a bigger peak or the next peak that's that, that you maybe weren't able to see when you started. And so Daniel's message was always shoot for the bigger than big. And Paul is someone I know that has done that consistently uh, as a classroom teacher uh, and now in his role as CEO and co-founder of Goldbug Interactive. Uh, and he's just one of the most creative guys I know. So inspired always to talk to him. With that introduction, Paul, welcome back to the podcast. Wow. Wow. What a ringing endorsement from uh, such a great person. Andrew, I, I absolutely love any opportunity to spend time with you. And I feel so honored to join you again on your podcast. I think it's our Technically our fourth time, because I think we recorded an entire episode that we had to re-record at one point. <laughs> it was better the second time, though. It was better the second time. So it was a good it was a good exercise, right? Our first draft was great, but our second one, we knocked it out of the park. Um, well, thank you. It's funny. You you give me more intentionality than I think I have, because I don't, I, I'm kind of just looking at my hands as I'm climbing and not really seeing where I'm going all the time. And sometimes, you know, life, life will take you to unexpected places if you open yourself up to possibilities and and you connect with people and so yeah I, I feel that there's been a big transformation you know a few years ago I was a classroom teacher and now I run a video game and multimedia studio and I lecture at a university and you know it's a series of trade-offs right there's a lot of pressures that come with my new life that I that I didn't have when I taught but there's also a lot of challenges that I think are nourishing me and pushing me forward in a positive way. Gosh, one well, to speak to that time in the classroom as maybe being the foundation and obviously the precursor to your current work and, and efforts. Uh, for those that don't know you as well, as I've had the opportunity to get to know you and follow your story, take us back into the classroom, I guess, and speak to as a classroom practitioner, some of the things that bubbled up in your work and efforts, because that yeah, that's really where I got to start to know you uh, was through just passion for engagement uh, for games and education and thinking about how to make those not just a review game, nothing against those, and not just something that would be window dressing or like I've heard people refer to it as chocolate broccoli sometimes, which those things have their place as well, uh, but really to have that, that game-based learning experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, my background background, I've always been a lit nerd. I, I read a lot as a kid. I loved playing games as a kid. Uh, you know, I was a nerdy kid that liked to play video games and Dungeons and Dragons and all that stuff. I studied literature in university and got into teaching by accident. Uh, I didn't love school as a student. 
and kind of stumbled my way through and and but just loved parts of it and and loved reading and loved literature so that that pushed me through university uh fell into teaching by accident so i think that i was always very skeptical of the education system i always had that as a kid who was kind of on the outside i i definitely didn't buy into the system and and so when i first started i got you know i, I learned to be a teacher just to you know how to effectively teach and do things right because when i started i certainly was uh not doing things in the best possible way and then once i think i got a fairly good sense of that i wanted more i wanted to for my own nourishment i wanted to push boundaries and do things that you know were important to me and i started experimenting with games and i think the two avenues to say it briefly is i started one experimenting with commercial video games in the classroom and seeing how we could use these kind of really engaging artifacts and leverage them to keep kids on task but also in a really you know unique 21st century way and then from there i started thinking about immersing kids in games you know how do you alter business as usual and, and create events that last 30 days with missions and spying and all kinds of things. And, and once I kind of broke through into that world, I, it, it really was, you know, it inspired me to keep digging and, and looking in that direction. And I designed a few games and a lot of curriculum around games in the classroom. And that defined probably about the last 12 or 13 years of my 20 years in the classroom. So so most of it in some ways, maybe 10, maybe about half of it. I, I, I don't know. Never been good at math. And from there, I think a lot of the work that I did, and thankfully I was at a school that didn't get in my way at all. They they just let me do. It was an independent school, and 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 I had the privilege and luxury of, of being able to you know access to technology. Really good kids. They're all good kids, by the way. I I, I don't believe there are bad kids. I just think there are bad systems and bad circumstances. But kids are kids, and they're awesome. And we should all remember that as educators. That's that's the most important thing to remember. Don't fall into the trap of seeing the kid at the back of the class as a problem. See it as somebody who needs your extra attention. So from there, I started, you know, circulating and working with UNESCO and all other big institutions and, and made sort of a jump and got my doctorate and started teaching at university and really always wanted to do something more, to take a lot of the lessons I'd learned in the context of the classroom. And without really much design, as I said earlier, I, I met, uh, you know, my counterpart, my business partner at a, at a tech conference in India, of all places, and we just had a really good connection. Uh, she's based in Mexico City, and I've had a long history with Mexico City. My dad lived there, business took him there, and he stayed there for a long time. And I'm a huge fan of the culture and the creativity. A lot of people don't know that Mexico City is Mexico City. It's a remarkable place. Unfortunately, Mexico gets a bad name with crime and, and all these types of things. But there's also one, it, it's to me, one of the powerhouses of creativity and culture in the Western world. And it's often underserved. And so we, we connected on that level. And she's a game designer. She had a studio for 15 years. She's been making games for the UN, for museums. And so we sort of decided to join our powers and start a new studio called Goldbug Interactive. We based it here in Montreal, where I now live. My family moved from Toronto to Montreal. We get all kinds of tax breaks in Montreal, and Montreal is a real hub for the game design and artificial intelligence world and media. There's a lot of people in that space here, so it's, it's a nice place to have a studio. And yeah, so we're up and running, and we've had an interesting array of experiences in, in the two years of our life. And so, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. And what I'm continuously fascinated by following, whether it's your LinkedIn profile uh, or when we get a chance to catch up, is just the international demand for the work that you all get to do and that that 
permeates a myriad of different, whether we want to call them disciplines or contexts or professions, it is knowing your story like I do, it's fun to think about all of those under that same lens of where we're still talking engagement, we're still talking, you know, about games as being uh, a way in which to reach people and to help them learn and to optimize their yeah, ability to grow towards desired outcomes. And so, so I guess before we start to really pin that down, I had a chance to chat with Michael Matera recently, and he's also a big game advocate. And when he was on the podcast, he made it a point to say uh, that pedagogy and andragogy are different and that adult learning is not the same as youth, right? Pedagogy, peda, being, being talking about children. And so what have you found in terms of maybe that adult learning piece as you've transitioned from a K-12 setting to being in the work world, mm-hmm. trying to educate and keep adults engaged? Yeah, so it's funny. Um, I would say it's definitely different, right? You always, uh, you, one thing you learn in media production is you've got to target your audience. You have to know who you're dedicating, and that that almost I would say transcends a clean division between children and adults because within the adult world, there's everything from Afghani NGO workers to Mexican nurses to all kinds of different people, and you've got to cater your project to that sensibility. And there are fundamentals that don't change, right? I mean, Candy Crush is a game enjoyed by a huge swathe of people, the kids, adults, men, women of all demographic sorts, because there are elements of engagement in a game like that that, that transcend demographic categories. And, and I think you'll find that uh, even with board games, the family of family board game, ever you know, you're looking at you know adults and children, they're all different ages and, and they're still enjoying a shared experience. So there's no easy answer for that in the sense that I there's a good chance, you know, one of the things that we're working on now is we're creating a game for the Afghan community. Um, and Afghanistan is a country that is probably the most vulnerable to climate change of any country in the world. And, and they have had some devastating climate events the last few years, floods and droughts and the cold. They've had a really cold winter and, and they're not prepared for it. So it's really heartbreaking. And one of the things that could help mitigate that is planting trees. They, they've had an enormous amount of deforestation due to wars and uh, illegal selling of lumber. And many of the villages heat their homes with, with wood. So they're cutting down the trees to, to stay warm in the winter. And the Afghan winter can be quite cold. So we are working with a major international development agency who have been involved in Afghanistan for a long time, trying to promote reforestation. And they hired us to create a game that promotes reforestation. And our primary target are the NGO workers who are working with the villages and communities. So we, and it's essentially a simulation, right? Where uh, you're in a village, you've got to manage uh, herds of goats because herding is about 70% of the non-urban economy. So that's a big part of it. And the herds of goats, you know, they chew up the land and if it, it's not always sustainable. So the game sort of teaches you that you can actually actually replace the economic benefits from herds by planting certain types of trees that produce fruit, uh, you know, nut trees uh, that produce lumber quickly, like poplars. Poplars can grow very quickly and produce lumber. So I've learned a lot about trees, Andrew. I've been I've been in the tree <laughs> world, you know, and, and, and that's what's fun about the work is that, I'm, you know, what I love best about teaching was learning. 
I was always learning and my students were always pushing me and asking me uncomfortable questions that I didn't always have answers to. And I had to go back home and read more. And, and that continues. Every project we do is completely different. And there's a lot of, you know, reading and legwork to get up to speed with whatever it is that we're doing. And, and I love that part of it. That part of it for me is the best part of the job. So, and then with that game, we're targeting a certain demographic and, and part of it even includes thinking about what they have access to in terms of technology, right? They only have kind of mid-range Android phones. So we have to make sure this game works with mid-range Android phones. And, but then one of the things, because we do work with Afghanis, right? We need to be culturally sensitive. We need to know the reality of who's receiving this. And they say they don't like cartoony games. They don't like games at all because they think it's for children. So we've had to make this super realistic, but still working with a very, very low powered computer. And it's been a huge challenge to make the whole thing work. And all of this to say that I think a kid could pick up that game and have some fun. I mean, I don't think he'd take it over Halo or or any of these kind of, you know, AAA games, but it's still, you know, it's got little rewards and you move things around and, and it's kind of like, a, you know, the base building and planting trees and setting up nurseries and setting up canals. And so I do feel that although you should target these learning experiences, you know, let's say to adults, that uh, unintentionally, I don't think you necessarily alienate children. And there's really a, a margin. Like, I think adolescent children can definitely move into the adult learning world. I mean, if you're looking at two or three-year-olds, of course, then no, that's a whole different world. So I, I would say the line is blurry. And that really for us, we focus on targeting demographics uh, as opposed to broad age groups. Yeah, so the, the answer kind of ran full circle there, right? That it's so important to understand your audience. And then in doing so, part of that is need, but part of that is, as you said, tech availability and what it takes on your end to be a lifelong learner to be able to continually pick that up because you're not just doing work in Afghanistan. No, no, we're, we're, we're pretty spread out. It's, it's really an interesting model. You know, I've stumbled, I, I don't, I really cannot emphasize enough that none of this is intentional. I don't have a master plan. You know, I, I, I kind of like, I think it's just opening yourself up to things, right? Not saying yes. no, not saying yes. no. And, and I think that's part of the trick and, and just, you know, loving life and wanting to do things and meeting people. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Right. Um, so we don't only have international clients, our studios distributed all over the world. We make these games with people in Japan, the Philippines, Mexico. We all have teams that are coming from all you know the states and we build teams around the project and that keeps our business model pretty agile. We don't have a studio where we have permanent employees. We have a few permanent employees, but most of our people are contractors or freelancers that we bring in that my partner has a huge history with and we trust them to, to work on the project with us. And that, that's been really good and international. So for example, we are also, we've worked with a US client that I, you, you know of because coincidentally you were involved in this project where we were asked to gamify surveys. And these surveys are these really incredible surveys that are meant to kind of encourage students to give feedback on how engaging a class was to help teachers improve their delivery. And, and it's a great tool for teachers to assess levels of engagement. I can imagine some will be reluctant because sometimes you don't want to look in the mirror and say, this was a boring class. And I understand that. Sometimes there are days where I didn't, I knew it wasn't great and I wasn't willing to do the work to make it great. And, and, and I didn't want my kids to be, have a voice in that. But I think it's a really important feedback tool because often are, you'd be surprised about what students can let you know when they're given the right channel because they can often be shy or they don't want to visibly criticize you. And and any teacher who really believes in improving their practice would benefit from a tool like this. So when they approached us, 
they're like gamifier surveys. And we really believe in research. We don't just look at what so-and-so is doing and a version of this or stars and leaderboards and blah, 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 blah. I'm an academic and well, partially, I'm a hackademic, I would say more than an <laughs> academic. You know, I, 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 I have my skepticism about the academic world, much like I have my skepticism about the, uh, about the school world sometimes. And so I dig into the databases and find evidence, like what works, what doesn't work. And, and it's always sometimes counterintuitive. And surprisingly, there's a lot of research that's been done on gamified surveys. And we've found out that a lot of what you think you should do, you shouldn't because it has very limited levels of retention. So we, we work through what does work, which is giving choice and creating immersive worlds. And, and funny enough, you know, we were saying, oh, we're going to make it narrative, right? Like the story, there's going to be a story as you work through the survey. But one of the things we learned from the research is the stories are distracting and often uh, contaminate the results and all of these things. So we worked with this client and eventually used all of this research in order to create these really visually stimulating, fun surveys. We created a character for, for Lesson Loop called Moopy, which is this kind of amorphous person that is struggling with its identity and taking on different shapes and forms depending on the type of survey. A lot of fun, uh, an amazing company, and, and they're based in the US. We also have a client in Mexico where we're designing a micro learning ecology to train nurses and home care workers. And that's been a lot of fun. We've been building a whole world and really pushing boundaries as to what online learning can be in the, in, in the way that we use the modules and have recurrent characters and use multimedia ranging from podcasts to, to comics. And what very exciting project that I'm that we're right, you know, that's what I was doing this morning, as, as I mentioned before we started recording. We're working with an NGO to develop uh, a card game, uh, a fairly complex, but we're trying to make it easier card game to teach a methodology, which is called results-based protection, which allows you to discover who the most vulnerable people are in a conflict or in a climate crisis or a combination of both and how to respond in order to best protect them. And, and, and it's a very agile methodology that asks you to constantly analyze and not assume things about who might be vulnerable and what might be happening and constantly keeping the ear to the ground. And so this is going to be shared with NGOs all over the world. I think they, this it's called an NGO cluster. Uh, it's the company's interaction and they deal with about 190 NGOs. So we're hoping that this game will, will make a difference and help people, adults, <laughs> think differently. And, and the nice thing about this project is that it's very 21st century. And I, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole in the sense that the way that we design games is iterative. We, we, you know, we have an idea, we think it's going to work, it doesn't, we try again, we try again, we play again, we fix it, it goes on forever, right? It's a lot of work to get to something that works. And games are really agile, they're dynamic, you can play the same game 100 times and never have the same game twice. And this methodology is very agile in the sense that you're iterating and you're at, so there's been a really nice connection between the game and what we're trying to teach with the game and form and content. And that that's been a really powerful experience. Um, and then finally, my pet project, because, you know, all of these are, you know, they sound really cool and sophisticated, but I'm telling you, it is a lot of work, a lot of stress, uh, a lot of uncertainty, because being forced to be creative is very different than being creative on your own clock. And, and that I've, I've learned to live with that, because that's not the way it was when I used to invent things while I was a teacher. It was nobody was expecting anything from me. So I just, you know, took months to do something if I wanted to. Now we have deadlines and clients and all, all you know, the realities of, of the, the market. 
but we do have a school as one of our clients, a beautiful school in a beautiful part of Mexico that has a philosophy of keeping kids close to nature, experiential learning, like things I really believe in. And they had resisted technology. The community of parents had resisted technology. They're all fairly affluent. This isn't your, you know, your neighborhood school. These are affluent Mexicans who have gone to this part, this really beautiful area called Valle de Bravo, which is just like beautiful green and rivers and, and biodiversity. It's just stunning. And they many escaped the pandemic to live there. And they just wanted their kids to grow up without screens. They get enough screen time at home and they felt school was a place for them to explore and grow. And so we were hired by them in order to convince the parents that technology can be good, that it can align with that experiential vision. And we've been working with them for almost a year now, helping them choose their hardware, training their teachers. Uh, and it's been a really nice experience for me. That's that's my sweet spot. I love teachers. I love students. And it's always nice to connect on that level. And I, I love to creatively solve problems in education. So here's the problem. How do you connect nature and technology, which are often mistakenly seen as being at odds with each other. And it's been a beautiful challenge, for sure. Well, and I'm fascinated by that piece and, and all of them for that matter. But while we're on the subject of it, to the degree that you're able to do so, would love to just learn a little bit more about the nuances of how that's playing out, whether that be just in the, mm. um, I'm not sure where you're at in that process, if you're still just kind of thinking through that or early stages of implementation and iteration, but what lessons have you learned from trying to walk that sensitive line that is valued in that local context? Oh yeah. So it's, it, it we're in the thick of it. We, we've done, uh, and the best, the best, I think my favorite part was how we started the whole project. Um, and what we did, we had a week with the teachers. It was, you know, these end of summer week long, you know, events where you're doing PD and there's a lot of eye rolling and thankfully no eye rolling for us. They were really happy. They were super happy. And I get really nervous, right? You want to do, I'm, I'm really, I really care about doing a good job and every project is different. And I don't always feel like it's in my power hundred percent, especially now in, in this world that I'm in to do a good job the way that I had that ability when I was a teacher. So I really, we really worked hard. And my partner's awesome because she's not a teacher, but she really believes in learning by doing. And I am, a, you know, for all my good work, I love to talk, as you may be gathering from this podcast. <laughs> and and so I'm, I, I, my tendency is to lecture and share and get excited about stuff. She goes, no, they have to do things like this is about doing right. So she very deftly hired some indigenous guides who know the whole mushroom world. And, and, and they literally the forest is the backyard of the school. And I uh, have a huge fan of the iNaturalist apps. They're, they're apps that are freely available. Highly recommend them. Maybe put them on the, you know, the, the chat or oh, whatever, no. comments or the bio or whatever. Uh, this is going to find a home. And what these allow you to do is to identify anything in nature. And what's really cool, it's, a, it's an excellent citizen science app in the sense that you contribute your the pictures that you take to understanding the biodiversity of a region. And scientists can take this data and work with it. So what we did was we created this experience where we armed the teachers with their brand new iPads because they hadn't used them before. And we gave them different roles. Like some of them were ethnographers. I'm, I love ethnography, like taking notes on the people and they were interviewing the indigenous guides and watching how the other teachers were interacting in nature. And, and that's, that's a great tool for teaching. Like getting kids to become ethnographers is something that's really underserved. And, and it's a really powerful kind of mixing of science and humanities and observation and connecting kids to their community. So there's a lot of opportunity there. And our mission was 
do with the teachers what we hope they're going to do with their students, right? And inspire that. And then, so we also had a group of teachers who were identifying the various mushrooms using the iNaturalist app and seeing sort of what they came up with. Others were taking notes on what the guides were telling us. And there's some other role that completely escapes me now. So we went out into the field and we, oh, videographers. There were people who were documenting the whole thing and taking videos and interviewing and that kind of thing. So we, we spent an amazing day learning about mushrooms and the mushrooms, because it's a very, it rains like 70% of the time in this place. So everything is like insolently green and there's mushroom, and this was mushroom season, everything red, giant ones, little, I've never seen anything like this before in my life. And the guides are very localized. It's really interesting. It's not like they could go in any forest and identify. They all have their corners where they know that area very particularly because it can change even a few miles away. And, and so we got, you know, guides that actually said they didn't feel 100% comfortable in the area that we were in. So they just, they just worked with the ones they won, they were 100% certain with. And the best part is, is that they cut the, the ones that they can cut and safely take. And then they have huge, uh, they made quesadillas with us with these mushrooms at the end of the whole experience, which is really nice for PD to get these like handpicked mushroom quesadillas. And they were so memorable. Like I'll I was just like, I want 10, you know, <laughs> I, I couldn't stop eating. And, um, and so it was amazing. And then we took all this material back to the school and for the next days, they used that material, the videos, the pictures, the notes to learn all kinds of ed tech tools. Like how do you use comic life to create comics based on these images of mushrooms? How do you create a podcast from the interviews that you had with the indigenous people that you interviewed? Um, how do you make a short documentary film based on the footage that you took? And th this became a meaningful way to teach them how to use a variety of tools that they were wholly unfamiliar with. And we did a lot of you know group work where they would support each other, the podcast team, the documentary team, the comic team. And then they would present back to their colleagues. And then they're like, oh, you're now the comic expert because you've done this. So when I want to do comics with my kid using comic life, you can, you know, and it creates all under the the vision of a community of learning. I believe that learning is fundamentally social. And anytime you can create social experiences for learning between teachers, amongst teachers, with kids and, and families and teachers, you're creating a fertile learning environment. And it was a genuine learning community. It was an amazing week. Everybody was thrilled at the end of it. They said it was the best PD they'd ever done. I think it was the quesadillas that, that did it. <laughs> that, that, that I think that was the selling point. Give people good food and they'll just pave over the rest, right? So um, so it was it was wonderful. And, and, and it was really nice because none of that was part of my repertoire when I was a teacher. And it forced me to kind of push myself in a new direction. And, and you know, thank goodness for my partner who thought about hiring the guides. And that kind of was the linchpin uh, for the whole experience. And isn't that the way too? whenever you start to bring other minds into your creative process, it does just push you and stretch you into different avenues than you might have otherwise per pursued. And, you know, as you're talking there, too, it, it almost circled back to one of the things that you mentioned previously, where when you start to think about the different ways in which you can demonstrate your learning and share that um, and the tools that it takes for you to be able to create something that is different than what you might be accustomed to creating, but also might reach a different audience because of the modality through which you're expressing right like everyone sort of likes to engage differently and process things differently uh and so you were talking uh before we started recording today too about a project that you were doing where you almost experienced learning through that multimodal 
I'm trying. Oh, right. Up. Yeah. So, so what, what this goes back to the project we're doing in Mexico for the healthcare service. So these, th this company is essentially the Uber of home care workers. So if you've got a sick uncle who can't take care of himself, you call this company and they'll provide somebody who'll go in and work with your uncle and bathe him and feed him and give him his shots. Or if you have a cancer patient and you can't look after them. And so they, they, that was their kind of core business. And they started creating kind of learning modules to internally train their, their teams and the, the people who were involved uh, to be better at what they were doing. And these were, they, 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 and they were surprisingly successful and were being accessed with people outside of their kind of immediate employee community. But these were like talking heads and PowerPoint presentations. And as it so happens in the world of connections and networks, that my partner went to pick up her daughter at a play date and ran into the owner of this company who was vacationing in that same valley, that beautiful valley that I was talking about. He said, oh, we're looking for somebody to create these modules for us or this learning ecology. And I love that challenge. So we we came up with a really interesting concept that I, I haven't seen too many places. And, you know, somebody's going to listen to this and probably take off with it. Um, we basically created a world where we have a protagonist who's a nurse kind of finding her way in this new world of home care working and also nursing and all her friends and a cast of characters. And what we did is uh, we created, as you say, a multimodal learning experience. We use comics, we use podcasts, we use uh, faux Instagram accounts, we use uh, we use phone conversations, we use text messages, and all of this is used to reinforce all the different learning that they have to kind of provide for these healthcare workers, and all of it is cohesive within this kind of invented world of Anna Luce. That's our main character, Anna Luce. And, and so it's a really engaging experience in that, you know, you're reading a comic and learning about self-care, and then you answer some quizzes and questions, or, um, and then another one is you're listening to a podcast about different ways to bathe somebody, or we create a photosphere, which is kind of a three-dimensional picture that you can navigate and, and move objects around in, uh, or you manipulate a 3D object and all of these things that we can do because we're, we're a digital studio. Um, and it's been great. And part of it, and they had to abandon this part of it for long and complicated reasons, but the original vision was that each of these would be micro learning modules and that you would go onto the platform and maybe you weren't interested in getting certified. You just had, you know, your uncle had cancer and then you would put in the profile of what your need was and the micro learning modules would populate a unique course for you that would accommodate it. So this would require an injection module and a blood pressure module and a self-care module, and it would all bring it together. Or you want to be certified by the city of Mexico to be an official home care worker, then according to what those regulations are, all the courses would be populated. And what's nice is, is that there's often redundancy, like injections can work in a variety of different profiles. So we could use the one injection module and that would find a home in the different courses so because of the platform that they landed on we were going to program the platform to do that but then twists and turns and budgets and things and we ended up using a much more traditional platform that didn't allow us that agility so we've had to basically create the modules using that redundancy but not populating them automatically so that'll be a next mm -hmm. step when when you know somebody hears this podcast and wants to hire us and 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 we can do that for them Gosh, and so many of the things that we've discussed over the course of today's conversation, even I can make connections to the classroom in ways we could think about, you know, integrating that into lesson design, 
certainly it's not as if teachers have an entire studio at their disposal, as you've said before, but, um, but those elements can still inspire things that get brought into that classroom setting or through professional development, right? Being able to actually think about that in the work that we get to do in education, even though, um, mm-hmm. you know, an example like that is obviously in, in a healthcare industry. So, yeah, I really appreciate always getting a chance to listen and learn and, and see the things that you're doing. And if they're, because gosh, half hour goes really quick. Uh, <laughs> and we do, we usually chat for, for quite some time when we get these opportunities. Knowing what you know now from your, your role with Goldbug and with a uh, healthy respect too for what you do at the University of Toronto as a lecturer there. What would you advocate for with regards to how educators think about maybe those types of things, right? Like learning experiences mm-hmm. and lesson design in the future that is that's going to ask learners to be creative and to engage maybe in more of those types of non-traditional learning experiences. Yeah. So that actually ties very closely to something you said at the end, like not always, you know, a teacher doesn't have a studio at its disposal. I didn't have a studio for most of my career and I hacked, I I was, I'm not a programmer. I'm not a very accomplished artist. I don't have any of the skills that you would traditionally associate with the kind of work that I do now, but I would do like create games using Google maps and like, cause I was so desperate to try to build stuff and I didn't have the superpower to do it at the programming level that it's all just about kind of being creative and trying to mix and match and work with what you have. And so what that gets to is, design, 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 right? Let's think about teachers as designers. You know, and one of the things I do at U of T in my class, which is the games, and I teach social media and ed, and I teach uh, games and learning, is that the fu- the final project is they design a game. And, and the purpose of that is not for them to become game designers. Many have gone on to actually design some really brilliant games. And I'm always blown away because at the beginning, they're all scared and they want to just kind of do a, a reskinned version of Monopoly. And at the end, they actually design really powerful and unique games uh, in many cases. But that's not what I'm after. I'm after them feeling more confident as designers, period, and their success with the game. Then I roll in and say, see, you did this and you didn't. And now you know what it takes to do this. How can you design amazing instructional experiences? Because I think it was Michelle King. You should interview her one day. She's just the best. Michelle King gave a, a keynote at MIT for some conference. I don't know what. And and she's just the loveliest person. And she said, and I don't I don't know if this is hers or she borrowed it, but she said, "Don't teach, but create the conditions where learning takes place." And that to me is the home run. Like don't don't sit there and lecture as Paul Darvazi might, but actually create a learning experience, design a learning experience and set it in motion and watch your kids run around and talk and build and share and explore. And I think that's the future of learning. And any opportunity teachers have to, to read design books, to experiment, to take the risks with design, they're going to see their practice transformed. And the other thing too, what I what I am a big advocate of, don't just go to education conferences, sneak into an architecture conference, sneak into a, a chef's conference. And it's amazing when you do that cross-pollination, how it just opens your horizons. It changes your practice entirely. Oh, and I'm so glad that you went there because Paul, that is very much why I was hoping that we get a chance to chat today. Folks that listen into this podcast to go, isn't this an education podcast? Don't we? Well, we're certainly doubling back to that, you know, here and there where it makes sense. But it's so fun to hear about the things that you're doing outside of education and what that might mean 
for us, you know, in a classroom or with professional learning. Uh, and so thank you so much for your time. And I would provide a little window and a way in which for us to engage in that uh, through your story and all the great work you're doing at Goldbug Interactive. Thank you so much, Andrew. It is, I wholeheartedly uh, love being on your show. I love having any excuse to chat with you. We've had so many intersections here in Montreal amongst them. <laughs> and uh, I remember I, I ran into you by accident. We were both going to the same conference, but I was getting a coffee at, at some yeah. ungodly hour. And there was another guy in, in this empty room. And I was like, oh my God, it's Andrew in real life. <laughs> it was so amazing. So thank you so, so much for having me on and, and letting me share my story. And hopefully it'll, it'll have have a positive impact on, on all the great educators who I'm sure listen to your podcast.